Genesis chapter number one. A little bit of a long reading tonight, but uh, I've never seen a time when the church was in error for having a public reading of the scriptures. Amen. And if you're like me, you've uh, you've been plugged into uh, listening to Robert Smith read the Bible chronologically. I hope y'all have. Uh, this week was one of my favorite weeks. See, he was reading Job a lot, and at one point, he kept saying uh, they 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 loathe themselves, and uh, it sounded like he would say loaf. And it just got away from me, man. I loved it. And I went back and listened to it again and again. I said, man, I want to loaf for myself this weekend. I just want to loaf around by myself. Um, I pray uh, you've been enjoying those readings in the scripture. Um, I have. I have. It's been a real enhancement to my reading, listening to somebody else read. Uh, without much introduction, because that was last week, I want to jump right into the reading and then the handling of this absolutely fantastic passage. Uh, Genesis simply means the beginning, and, uh, and that's exactly what we get. And you have to have some sort of self-imposed imagination, because obviously if uh, the, the creation and ordering of these things were described in detail, this building wouldn't even hold the book to describe how even one set of vegetation is made, all the details involved. So what God has given us is the source material. Uh, in other words, he's the source, and all the material came from the source. And so we get a real general overview. And I get really excited anytime I'm in this part of Genesis because it reminds me to never look at anything that was made without considering the maker, his reasons for making, and his, and his ultimate intention for what he's made. And so Genesis 1 harkens me back to some of the most foundational truths about living my life, and that's to honor and look to my maker and the maker in all things. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. 
And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves from which, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work 
that he had done in creation. Father, we have opened your word. Now I humbly ask you to open it to us. Father, there is much here, and we trust your spirit to provoke your people to go do some holy mining for themselves, to find the gemstones, the treasures, the nuggets of gold, the streams of silver that flow through every clause. For tonight, God, may your people be given fresh spades and sharpened pickaxes, and might you peek in us a holy curiosity that makes us dearly loved children sitting curiously at our Father's feet. In Jesus I pray, amen and amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I tell you, we have, I think, if I remember from the sheet correctly, we have Genesis laid out in 62 sessions. I would contend we could do Genesis 1 in 62 sessions. It is that rich. It is that deep. Don't worry. I have attempted to bore down my comments to much less than even 62 minutes. So if you would look at a few very big ideas that I have been praying God would use to provoke some curiosity in us as students of the word. First is this. I want to bring back a statement from last week. Ex nihilo creatio. Now, does anybody remember what that means? Anybody? From nothing, creation. That's what we begin with in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In other words, before, you, before there was anything that is. I mean, before there was anything that is. There is God who was. Let me say that again. Before there was anything that is, there is God who was. He is eternally existent. And he did not go to Lowe's or Home Depot. He did not stop in at Bullock's Lumber Company and load up his, his uh, I think God would drive a Ford, to tell you the truth. He did not load up his F-350 and go out and start hammering and nailing and sawing and screwing things together. He had no material to work with. Material did not exist. There is nothing right now that exists that doesn't have mass. You ever thought about that? When you breathe, you're actually breathing in solid objects. That's sort of a wild thought. And that's why it's a problem. The more solid the objects you're breathing in, the more problem it is for you to breathe. In other words, when you add a bunch of dust to your breathing, that's bad. Right? Think about it. There was nothing, and from nothing God created. There's a lot of truths that are taught to us here. I would imagine the greatest truth we need to wrestle with when we consider the person and character and sovereignty of God is that he is the uncreated first cause. Science will never explain creation adequately apart from a personal, intelligent, willful being who designed and constructed it and made materials out of nothing. He is the uncaused first cause. He is the first that is, and without the first that is, there would never have been anything. The things that are now existing have not grown of themselves. They have been called into being by a ruling intelligence who had a will to act. Let me say that again. They have been called into being by ruling intelligence. 
with a will to act. Now, we, we, we tell, you know, we like to say that, that we create things. I want to go ahead and tell you. I want to bust some, some bubbles. We don't create anything. Uh, probably the closest we come to creating uh, something is, 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 is sin. Because that's something that is not of God. So when we make it, it's a fresh thing. But we humans construct, we form, we build, we make, but only God creates. And even the language, if we were to take time to look at it in the Hebrew, and you should, it's so much fun. The language in the Hebrew is a very unique word. God creates out of nothing, and there's an intelligence in creation. As a matter of fact, science and, and, and uh, Christian theology do not differ unless the scientist departs from Christian theology. A responsible scientist is simply trying to look at what a creative, willful intelligence has brought forth and give us a report on the details. It's not meant to say there is no God. It's meant to see what this God has done. There's been a big fuss over the last particular, I'd go back into the middle 1800s. So let's say 160 years or so, 160, 175 years. There's been a lot of fuss out of the uh, so-called Age of Enlightenment where eventually we said, you know, we figured this thing out. Given enough time, all this just came into being. As one apologetics uh, speaker noted that would be like saying a tornado came through a junkyard and out sprung a Boeing 747. It just doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, one of the primary seemingly irrefutable laws of science is that things move from order to disorder. Nothing goes from worse to better. It goes from okay or good to broke down. Let me put it in country boy terms. You'll never go to a junkyard and, as you walk around it long enough, come out with a new car. But you can, on your way to the junkyard, buy a new car, and the moment you drive it off the lot, its value is down and its perfection is ruined. And we know that to be true. There was a very popular economist who did a lot of helpful thinking. Not, not all of it. I don't say he did a lot of helpful thinking. In England, uh, back in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, his name was John Stuart Mill. He said this, It must be allowed that in the present state of our knowledge, the adaptations in nature afford a large balance of probability in favor of creation by intelligence. Now, he thought he was saying something real smart. He was saying... Whatever changes we might see still come from a creative intelligence. Duh. In other words, nothing would be here to change if it wasn't here to change. For example, if your child wants to go out for the weekend to Palace Point or something, and, uh, and they come and ask you for money, let's say you give them a, a, a green thing with Ulysses' uh, Grant's face on it, and they come back 
with like three things with George Washington's face on it. See, there's been a change. The only reason they have this change is because they started with something more significant, something of matter. John Stuart Mill thought he was being a smart guy when he said that, but all he really said was, if anything's changed, it was because something else already created it to be here to be possible for it to change. From nothing God created. I think we don't wrestle, wrestle with this enough. Probably the first and one of the largest lessons of the entire scripture is that at the origin and root of all of this vast and magnificent universe, before there were even things operating so consistently that we could call them laws. You get what I'm saying? Before all of this, there was a living conscious. We know him as God. There was an acting wheel. We know him as God. There was a hand of power. We call him the Holy Spirit. Before anything was, there was God. Because anything is, it needs an explanation. Science can only look at what is. It cannot tell you where what is came from outside of God. All of those current explanations that exclude God at the end of the day are silly. They're just silly. And usually they're an attempt to live without bowing to this creator. And there's the rub. Let me give you some application before we move on. Remember this, my friends. Remember this, brothers and sisters. All good starts with God, and all good comes from God. You say, man, that's, that's, that's overly simple. I, I had some milk today, and it was good. And I, I bought this milk, and I poured a glass of milk for my, my niece, my grandchild, and we enjoyed this milk. Well, go out of nothing and vent your own cow and get back to me. All good originates from God. And if there is good now that isn't totally wrecked by sin, it is a gift of the maintaining hand of God. Genesis 1.1 reminds me to start with the beginning, always. In James chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, we have a very wonderful reminder. The Bible says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where, church? And where does he come down from? Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Salvation comes from God. Creation comes from God. Redemption comes from God. The fact that we can Get food. Food just jumps up out of the ground. Isn't that wild? This is from God. We should not. It's no wonder God inculcated the Jewish people to pray so much. Because they were dealing with all of his stuff. And he really wanted it all to point to him. You're going to have a toast? Pray over it. The grain came from God. You're going to have 
Coffee, pray over it. The beans came from God. The water came from God. The dirt that made the cup you're drinking out came from God. The fire, the thing that you burned up to make the cup solid, it came from God. You get to lunchtime, you say, I'm just having a cheese sandwich. It came from God. Duke's mayonnaise definitely came from God. I'm positive. It's no wonder at every meal, at every turn, we're just urged to bow our heads and thank God. We, we should do the same thing when we put on our shirts. Thank you, God. We should do this. Hey, you guys been warm the last few days? Uh, coal came from God. Natural gas came from God. Now, he might have used middle schoolers to create it, but it came from God. Secondly, another Latin phrase, ex cao ad ordinem. Anybody want to take a guess what that means? From chaos to order. Now, I wanted you to get a, a cool picture of something. I, I'm not even trying to nail this down as like some grand theory or theology. I just want you to get a picture. It's like God made the mass. He, it's, this is a shaky metaphor, but just, just take it for what it is. It's like he made the material, and now he says, now let me organize it. It's like he says, great, here's a bunch of Legos, now let me put them together. But he didn't go to the store and buy the Legos. I'll tell you something interesting. Did you know that the first run of Legos ever invented still clicked perfectly, perfectly with the last Legos that came off the thing? It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, right? Isn't it amazing that all that we've done to damage the world, it still is working at all? <laughs> it's wild to me. From chaos to order. And though what I said is an oversimplification, we might think of God's creative process as him creating matter and then organizing. I wanted to point that out because I think that's what's getting pointed, pointed out in the, second, I mean, the first part of verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. He made all the matter, but then he made the matter matter. That's how I really like you to think about it. He made the matter, but he made the matter matter. Or maybe, if you've ever played with children, God bless them. If you've ever played with Play-Doh, how many of you guys have played with Play-Doh in your life or with your kids or grandkids? Ever played with Play-Doh? You know, what I, what I love these days is Play-Doh is, they've got some sort of evil plan. I don't know what it is. Uh... I got to River Liggett some, some Play-Doh for Christmas, and it was awesome. They have more colors of Play-Doh now than they did when I was a kid, that's for sure. But here's what they know. It, just, it doesn't matter how many colors of Play-Doh you give them. It's all going to come one color of Play-Doh. You know I'm right. So could you imagine, could you imagine, could you imagine, uh, I'll pick on Steve and Tammy, could you imagine me delivering to Daniel a, you know, a, a nice tub of every color they make, and just saying, here, have fun with this. And coming back, say, in two years and requiring y'all to not have lost any of it and to get all the colors back into the original. They would just have a sort of an amorphous gray blob. 
it's silly. It's a silly illustration, but could you imagine God saying, here's the building stuff, and then with no problem at all speaking from that, all of the order and beauty and multifunctionality, participatory functionality of all of the universe. The world was without form and void. He had made the stuff. He had made the matter of the stuff. Now he's going to make the stuff matter. For application, think like this. God meets disorder with order, so when disordered people know God, he seeks to order them. I want you to look at this creative work of God in Genesis 2 and start to understand how he's working with you. Any disordered place in your life, this orderly, creative, redemptive God wants to meet it and work on it. Now, I don't think there's a more succinct place to illustrate this than John 10.10. Look at what the Lord Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and do what? See how y'all know that verse? Throw it on the screen for me, Grant. All right? What does the enemy? The enemy wants to take things that don't belong to him, things that are precious, things with life. And he wants to take things that are ordered, and he wants to take, he wants to kill, and he wants to disorder. That's what sin does. That's what our enemy does. But what did Jesus come to do? He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the nature of God, and we see it here in the scriptures. You can say, man, I feel like I'm a mess. I'm not good enough to come to God. I'm too messed up to walk with his people. Well, you're in perfect company because what he does is takes disordered people and begins to order them. I'll tell you, this is where pastors and theologians run into trouble with many of the social issues when people want us to say something that God has called a sin. We're saying, look, we know that messes people up. That messes humans up. And you want to say it's not a sin and it doesn't matter. You don't realize you're at the point of resistance and rebellion with the one who would order our disorders. Thirdly, I want us to note from this passage, and I see the time, I'll speed up. I want us to note the personal engaged way the Spirit works with what he creates. Did you guys notice the language that was used in the second part of verse 2? The Spirit of God was hovering. I like that. He made this stuff. The triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, I, it's, it is an oversimplification, but I've heard someone say that God thought it, Jesus said it, and the Spirit did it. I've always loved, I've treasured that metaphor. It does break down, but I hope you can appreciate what they're going after here. What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit is standing ever ready to please both Father and Son and to work out the mind and the command of the Godhead. And he hovers there, working. I want you to think about when you look at the earth, and, and I love to go places to look at the earth. Uh, my, my family will tell you, uh, I, I, was, I was like giddy at Niagara Falls, like literally giddy. Here I am like nearly 50 years old, and I'm up on this maid of the mist in a dollar poncho just giggling. <laughs> you know, getting wet, and, and 
because I'm blown away with just the beauty and power. One-tenth of the world's fresh water goes through there every day. And I'm just like, I'm right here. And you go to the Grand Canyon, and on the one hand, it's just a great big ditch. But on the other hand, that's a great big ditch. And it's beauty must. And lately, I've been distracted. They probably, my family will tell you I brought it up several times. I want to go to the hill country of Texas. Anybody from Texas here that I don't know about? Everything's bigger in Texas, except the IQs. Anyway. <laughs> oh, where's Angel? Angel's away this weekend. <laughs> Texas, do you guys know about the hill country? Did you guys know that there are 10,000 feet mountains in Texas? We always think of Texas as, as, as sort of like this flat place. No, man, it's cool. We got waterfalls and rivers, and it's a huge part of Texas. I want to go there and see it. The world is wonderful. But could you imagine? Could you take your holy imaginations and imagine, silly breakdown illustration, an amorphous blob and the Holy Spirit ordering creation to the Father's delight and for the delight of those he would place in it. It's like, oh, oh man, this is going to be so cool. It's going to be rivers and forests. They're going to be mountains. And then one day they're going to mess up and the whole earth's going to be flooded. And I'm going to reorder some of this stuff. And I'm going to make even cool stuff out of the mess they made. Yes. But did you ever see creation just as gift, 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 gift poured out to us? Not only to be enjoyed, but to point us to the poorer. I just, it blows my mind to think of this formless void, this empty disorder, this what we might even call confusion, and to think how the Holy Spirit's going, hey, Bubba, watch this. Quick application, whether in formation or reformation or in working from death or void, the Spirit is engaged in giving order and life. I see the time. We'll skip over this. But just think of the account from John chapter 3. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be what? You must be birthed out of heaven. Can you imagine the void of a lost person, someone who is spiritually dead? There is no spiritual life. Can you even get an image of the Spirit of God? Hovering over them. And the Father gives life and the Spirit springs it out into their limbs, to their thinking and to their breathing, so that we might even sing in church together. This is your breath in my lungs, so I'm going to pour out this praise. Only a powerful personal God would engage to bring something out of nothing, to bring life out of death, to give order to disorder, even to bring forgiveness to shame and guilt. On and on and on I could go. Fourthly, by the power of his word, God creates all that exists. So where those first couple of verses were descriptors, he then goes on to sort of expand on that. And let me go through these very quickly. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm way behind. I apologize, mostly to the nursery workers, not to y'all. Y'all are fine. <laughs> Something's probably, Huh? Oh, (laughs) 
But let me press through, okay. <laughs> wow, if I had known that beforehand. <laughs> now, I've mentioned this, but let me state it plainly. God creates form and order. That's what we see in verses 3 through 13. And what we see in these verses is a basic description of how God fixes formlessness. For example, let me just give you an example. Think back to, we won't go there, but think back to that John 3 passage. Jesus says, do not marvel, I tell you, must be born again. What Jesus was telling Nicodemus flat out blew Nicodemus' mind. Y'all remember that? Nicodemus is going, uh, like, I, I don't get this. I don't, I mean, you're saying like, you're saying like, I've got to be in the womb again, right? Uh, has anybody ever seen that meme of the lady with the confused face and all the mathematical figures flying around her head? That's one of my favorite memes ever. You know, that's, that's me most of the time. People tell me things and I go, that's what Nicodemus felt. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, you cross the four, you carry the seven, Huh? Right? Because what Jesus is saying is so wild because the world is so broken that he says, listen, you've got to get this new life from God. This life, it's dead in you. There, there, it's not, it doesn't exist. It has to come from God. You are dead. You need a miracle. Well, when you look at creation, you see that's God's norm. There's a, there's a void and a formlessness, and he begins to give it form and matter and meaning. On day one, God creates light and separates it from dark. It's that simple. Day one, he creates light and separates it from dark. Now, we could and probably should spend some more time on that. Go to Life Together Group. In verses 3 through 5, you see that. You see it very clearly. God said, let there be light. So he made light. And where there wasn't light, right, there was darkness. And that's the difference. Darkness doesn't exist. There's not a presence of light. Go to that next one, Grant. Not only, oh, no, uh, oh, never mind. I'm talking about 4A1, but you might not see it. Who knows? In verses one, uh, 6 through 8, we see what God does on the second day. I, I, oversimplification, but God creates the atmosphere. He separates the water in the sky from the water on the ground or the water that covers the earth, not on the ground, that covers the earth. He separates these two. On day three, God creates a fertile ground from which there can, there can be vegetation. So you see in, a, in what we would call days, and, and I'm one of those people who believes they're days, and if you want to have a discussion about that sometime, watch out. You'll be convinced that gap theory should just be sent right back where it come from, to the world of theory, because um, that's what it is. What does God do? God, God begins to order things, and when he, when, he, when he separates light from dark, what he does is he gives us the way we think about time and space. And he literally just gave us something to measure lives with gives us time. Now, time is a very bewildering concept, but there it is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He's telling you, I created stars, and you have this one star that's going to operate in this place. I'm going to place you, and what's going to happen is it's going to sit still, and the earth is going to spin and do circles around it, and as it's spinning and doing circles, these will be days. Woo! 
And everything cannot just be a foggy mess because he's going to make things that need to breathe, and they can't breathe dense fog. So let's separate the waters. Let's make a breathing space. And people can tread water, but not forever, so let's give them somewhere to stand. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they want to get into all the signs of this, and that's good, praise God. But the overriding point is he's creating a very special place for a very special creation. Part B of this is God brings about what I'll call, and what you see on the screen, a blessed fullness and harmony and, and, and he establishes man's dominion over this fullness and over this harmony. What does he do on the fourth day? Using light, God creates regulatory systems. He had already made the light. Now he's making the light a regulatory system. And that's a, an amazing standing testimony to God. We won't go there for the sake of time, but think about Psalm 119. He says, listen, listen, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God all day, and the heavens declare the glory of God all night, and they do this every day, and they do this every night, all day, and all night. And he was telling you right there in Genesis chapter 1, I'm laying this thing down, I'm laying this thing down to be an everlasting testimony. As God does this, he also creates life for the sea and the sky. And as God does this, he creates life for the land. This is the fifth and the sixth day. Also on the sixth day, he creates man for his service. Now, I find this to be a beautiful truth. He made everything else as a gift to man, and he made man to be a service to him. What's our application? It's this. God doesn't make any junk. He's the the one who is the prince of peace is also the king of glory. And everything that is out of order, he will bring into order. He will reconcile all things to himself. Last but not least, and very quickly. Last but not least, and very quickly. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see that God finalizes creation with his blessing of holiness. Now, what am I talking about here? The Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he, he rested. He, he, he made everything. Excuse me, verse 1 says he finished everything. Everything. He made the earth, he ordered it, and then he filled it up with stuff. And then, then it tells us in verses 2 and 3 that God rested. Have you ever thought about how important rest is? It's part of the Mount Sinai co uh, covenant. It's part of the Big Ten in the law. And it's actually, you know, the first four about you know, doing this, our relationship with God, resting is part of that relationship. It's so cool. And it's also a gift to man, rest, rest. So in this summary found here in verse 1, it says, thus the heavens and the earth. In this summary, thus, by his word, creation is complete. He gave you a big summation of how he did it, and he says, listen, I finished it and I didn't leave anything out. By his word, he is the alpha and the omega. He is the genesis and the revelation. He is the start of all things and he will be the answer to all things in the end. And finally and quickly, choosing and using his rest, not needing his rest. He didn't need rest. He didn't need rest. 
God sanctifies. In other words, he makes holy the seventh day. And what is this all about? He's showing us that rest is a sense that he has done, and we should rest because he, we can trust him who does all things well. We should rest to show dependence on him. We should rest as worship unto him, and we should rest because he has declared it is a matter of holiness. What do we learn from Genesis today? If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. We learn a big thing about God. We learn that God orders, speaks, and redeems, and he often uses dichotomies. Darkness and light, nothing to something, chaos and order, death and life, blessing and cursing. God wants to be clear when he deals with his people, when he speaks to his people. Secondly, we should learn that God is sovereign. Believe it or not, that's what most of us are wrestling with all the time. We're wrestling with the sovereignty of God. He has been sovereign since before anything that is, was, and will be when all that is, isn't. Much of our, our contending in life today is with this reality. We're contending with the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, God works through his powerful word. And I mean the word. His word and the word, the Lord Jesus, and also through the declared word. God is at work. And what is he doing? What is he doing in our day? He has already created, so what is he doing? He is working to sanctify. He's working to reveal himself to people through what he has made. And he is working to redeem his creation. Fourthly, in application, any relation to creation that happens without relation to the creator is disorder. I would say those are our two big fighting points, even within ourselves. God's sovereign. You know, uh, you, know you say, I, I, you know, I've never heard Katie say this, but she's my daughter. I can pick on her. Maybe you're curly-headed like Katie. She says, I hate my curly hair. Well, God gave you her curly hair. As a sovereign choice of God, right? My family's nuts. All right, God placed you in that family. You know, uh, I'm short. Okay, God made you short. You know, I'm good looking. Yeah, it's hard, but we have to do it. Some of us. All right. We wrestle with God's sovereignty in all kinds of ways all the time. We don't like the way things are going. Genesis reminds us that God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. But he's good. So, so a lot of this wrestling with sovereignty is Satan making us feel that God doesn't care. Everything he made was good and for our good. And his desire for us to be in alignment with his kingship is a desire for us to discover good and enjoy it with him. And this, I mean, you know, honestly, this, 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 this other reality that I think we, we wrestle with all the time, whether we, we talk about it out loud or not, is uh, we, want God, we want God to do what we want him to do, not fix, not change, not transform. <laughs> we don't want him to put something that is disordered into the, the furnace and reshape it. And we argue with him about that stuff a lot. 
You know, we got a whole cultural movement going on. I mean, several of them. Or he's trying to say, no, this is okay with God. And God's going, no, it's not. So you're really contending with me. You know, that's the things we wrestle with. And Genesis 1 just puts me to mind all that. Ask yourself today, do you celebrate the sovereignty of God or do you wrestle against it? Do you joyfully say, God, you are my king? Do you, do, you, do you enjoy the gifts he's given you, or are we always just hungering for something else, something more? Brothers and sisters, Genesis 1 reminds us that God intends us to have a joyful flourishing in relationship with him. What would the enemy do? The exact opposite. Break the relationship, break the flourishing. So just ask yourself today. Am I having a joyful flourishing with God? Let's pray. Father, I, 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 I see that preaching Genesis is going to be an extremely difficult task. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This does not depend on me. <laughs> Thank you, God. Would you, over the next year and some odd weeks... Hover over this church in a very, very special way. It calls us to reconnect with the truths of Genesis. The truths about who you are, the truths about the world you have made, the truths about our brokenness, and the truths about your willingness to redeem broken people. Even tonight, even tonight, I am positive many of my brothers and sisters, and myself included, we wrestle with your sovereignty. We wrestle with conditions that we don't like. We wrestle with things that you have divinely chosen, and uh, we wrestle with you. Would you bring us into a place of peace? Would you bring us into a place where we long to discover why you made us, why you made it, and where it's all going. In Jesus I pray, amen.